Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hey, it's Cindy Howes and Lizzie No from the podcast Basic Folk, honest conversations with folk musicians. Basic Folk is truly changing the game with our well-researched deep dives that aim to empower the listener while fostering the folk community. I basically am writing worship music for youth group rejects. Maternal regrets and maternal guilt are universal. I try to make things that are beautiful and that are made with like a purity of intention. You can listen to Basic Folk on on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network or at basicfolk.com. Okay, y'all, get ready. I was a major soccer player my whole life until I had to decide between playing soccer in college or acting. And spoiler alert, I chose acting. But I had Mia Hamm, Abby Wambach posters. I loved everything about the women's national team, the Women's World Cup. It was totally a massive part of my childhood. So it was an incredible pinch me moment having the insanely magical, talented, smart, kind, funny Abby Wambach on harmonics today. If you don't know who Abby Wambach is, first of all, what's wrong with you? But second of all, she is a two-time Olympic gold medalist and FIFA World Cup champion. She is second in international goals scored for both women's and men's soccer. Okay, y'all, that's 184 goals. That's a lot of goals. She is also a wonderful author. She is the author of Forward and Wolfpack. Wolfpack we talk a lot about in this episode, and now it sits on my nightstand next to her wife, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. You may remember the very first episode of Harmonics was with Glennon Doyle, whose book also sits on my nightstand. So talk about a power couple. I mean, I don't think there's any couple more powerful and lovely and wonderful than these two. And I cannot believe that I got to talk to them both. So, oh my goodness, there were so many amazing moments in this interview that I need to go back and listen and write them all down in my journal because Abby was truly one of the most inspirational people I've ever been able to have a conversation with. Please enjoy the amazing Abby Wombach. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm so good. I have to say, I've had on your wife, which I was very excited about. I've had on Brandy Carlisle and Carol Burnett, people I'm very excited about. But I've never dressed up for anyone oh. in my life. I'm wearing a full-on women's national team jersey with my name on it. I have a few. <laughs> Nike sent me because they know I'm a big women's national team fan over the years. But this is like my inner child. I was a huge soccer fan growing up. Mia Hamm on my wall, like you. Loved Mia. Same. Um, same. And so this is like, this is really, everybody who knows me is like, you're, you're freaking out about having Abby on. I'm like, yes! <laughs> 
my husband, I made my husband take a picture where I got my Angel City, like, VIP seat ticket, like, deposit already done. Like, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on. I'm so excited to be here. And honestly, I feel super humbled that you're wearing that jersey, right? I think that it's so awesome. And I do believe I see that fourth star up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Because it's four. We've, we've won You've four, won World, four Cups. World Cups. Yeah. yeah. No, no biggie. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, how are you holding up? How has this 2021 been for you so far? Yeah, um, it's I understand that this is coming from the most privileged position that I'm not worrying about, you know, drinking water and I'm not worrying about stuff that I know that so many people in the world are worrying about right now. And the reason why I say that is because this has been the best year of my life. Wow. <laughs> um, in, in so many ways, you know, and this is total first world problems. I get it, but it's still true for me. Not having to get on an airplane for over 12 months was a true joy. And, it, and I don't know, I, I feel like my, my central nervous system, like finally, for the first time, maybe actually settled down since I was like 14 years old when I started traveling for soccer. You know, I've, I've, I've traveled the world and I've traveled millions and millions of miles around the world. And it's been amazing, but it really takes a toll on your brain, yeah. on your body, on your mentality. So for me, though, it's been an amazing year. I am ready for the world to start opening up. And I have been, um, the last couple of weeks, weeks going and getting on airplanes and starting to do work again in the real world. And let me tell you something. I am an extrovert like yeah. through and through. Uh -huh. I have real anxiety. Like I have, I have like social <laughs> awkwardness. Like I've never understood before. I, I mean, obviously like the meeting of, of human beings is different now. Like obviously we're not shaking hands. So it's just like, high from afar, like just waving hands at each other. So I don't know. I, th I feel like the social norms are, we're all basically like kindergartners going to school for the first time, trying to figure out what like life is. Um, the rules are different out there and figuring them out is I think going to take a little bit more time, but for the most part, I have had an amazing time off, so to speak. But yeah, I, I, I'm grateful, obviously privileged to, to say everything that I just said, because I know that there are so many people in the world that have lost and have suffered and have struggled during this last year. And I think for the first time in a while, I feel a little bit hopeful, right, that the world is about to start opening up again. Are you worried? My biggest fear, I'm feeling hopeful, but I feel like I've lost some of my ambition through 2020. <laughs> like, I feel like <laughs> that. And I know you and Glennon are like taking over the world. So, you know, we, you guys, I have the ambition. We need you right now. <laughs> but I just feel like there's been this fear of mine about burnout. Like I'm scared mm. to go back to pre-2020 Beth burnout perfectionism. Yeah, well, I'm totally going to steal some of Glennon's stuff right now. Yeah. Um, but, but the reality is, is I think that 2020 and COVID, it was a forced settling Right. So she talks about the snow globe and that the that that red dragon in the middle of everybody's personal snow globes, like we just keep shaking up throughout our lives. Right. And so this last year, it's been a forced settling of that snow globe, forcing us to look at some of the things in our lives that 
We've always said, oh, I'll get to that later, right? We've always said, oh, I just don't have enough time for dot, dot, dot. And this last year has like literally proven that no, it's, it's just laziness. No, you just are scared. No, it's just fear. No, it's just anxiety, whatever it is. And so for me, it's like, I believe that, and, and Glenn also uses this metaphor of like sifting through some of the stuff that you just don't need. And I think that for the first like few months of the pandemic, I just kept buying stuff on Amazon. <laughs> me too. Okay. I'm laughing because my husband yeah. would be like, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. Like literally I had no self-control. It was like the only thing that I could, that was like curbing my inner world that I just didn't understand. Like, how am I alive during this moment of time? And so that was the only way, cause I'm sober five years. So like I have no easy buttons to like get me out yeah. of bad situations. And so buying things is an easy button for me that I realized. And three months in, I understood that I bought everything in the world <laughs> that you could buy. Um, but the, the truth is, is I under also understood that materialism is also a form of shaking up that snow globe right? Yeah. and not actually dealing with some of the stuff. So because of the longevity of COVID, I think that it forced people to actually truly at least start thinking about start thinking about fixing themselves on the inside. And so much of what our internal world is telling us or tell, told us last year is I think I work too much. Yeah. Right. I think I spend too much time away from the people I love. I think that I care too much about, um, and it's not about ambition. I think, especially in the entertainment world where we live, it's like, Oh, I care too much. I'm too vain. Yeah. I'm too self-centered. I'm too narcissistic. I'm too worried about, um, stepping one foot outside of the industry because then I will get lost and, and I'll be gone forever. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's all of these like things, these worries that we go through on a daily basis that I believe that COVID at least for some of us got us to see the reality of like, Oh, these are things in my life that don't work for me anymore. So I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that what I just heard from you, Beth, is that it's your fear, um, for, for losing that it quality or losing the thing that makes you in the industry yeah. and, and successful in the industry. I don't know. I don't believe that your ambition has changed. I just think that you've gotten realistic about the time that you're spending doing certain things and the value, yeah. right? So valuing your home life, and that time might have raised in its priority. Right. Yeah. And I think for the rest of us, it has too. And there, there will be sacrifices, right? Like some of it might be income. Yeah. Some of it might be fame, some of it, but like, I think for the most part, a lot of us are like, Oh, but that stuff doesn't matter in the end. Doesn't it doesn't matter. matter. It matters. Like what are, what our close people think of us and how we, how we got so much closer as a family. Yeah. I'm so grateful for COVID because we've got these three kids one is about to go off to college, two are in high school, uh, one is in middle school. And it's like, this was, would have been the time where like, maybe we just like kind of called it in as parents, but we were forced to be really good at our jobs as parents, you know? So it's just been so interesting, like that whole thing. So no, I don't believe your ambition is gone. I just think you got really real about the time and how valuable your time is to you. So like a little mental shift there. 
That's actually like blowing my mind right now because I feel like I've been talking to a lot of people in the industry about this and that's exactly what it is. It's not that the ambition's gone. It's just that you don't want to lose the relationships, which I think if every happiness professor you read or, or, you know, books you read about it, they say that our relationships are really the thing that cultivates our happiness. I also think nature for me is like, and I had time for that, you know? So that's really mind blowing. I wonder if, so you're, Road to sobriety, all, all the beautiful people who are sober in my life also have such, um, they're so grounded and have done so much work that they're really, I, I look to them as, as sort of, uh, not gurus, but people who like really know resilience and know how to stand tall in times of hard times and keep going for you because the pandemic sort of exploded out of no, none of us were expecting it. Was it hard for you with your sobriety? Uh, and you don't have to answer if you don't feel comfortable, but like, Oh no, I love talking about okay. this. Thank you okay. for actually asking. Yeah. I think that because this is, this has become, um, a hot topic during the pandemic. A lot of people were overusing, uh, were realizing that, that, that maybe they were struggling with some substance abuse, whatever it might be. Um, my sobriety it's a constant in my life, like everything. And, and the way that Glennon and I kind of define it, cause she's been sober for 19 years. The way we define our sobriety is just peace. Hmm. Okay. So it's not about abstaining from drugs or alcohol. It's about building a, a, a high castled wall around the, the peace Island that we want to live on. Wow. And I personally believe that my addictions came from stuff that I never dealt with, right? So I was self-medicating, okay? And it, it's, in my, it's in my family genes to become an addict. Um, and it took me a long time. I was pretty high-functioning alcoholic for a long while. Uh, and it took me a long time to get comfortable enough with the idea of living in sobriety. Now, I know that COVID was an extremely stressful time for so many of us, parents especially, parenting with small children. I don't know how the hell you parented small children during this last year. Like Me either, by the way. I could barely parent myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I had older children right. and that was hard, right. but I couldn't, I couldn't, I can't, I can't even touch that with a 10 foot pole. But my sobriety, it's so funny to think about like sobriety is just like, it's just actually dealing with your shit. When it comes up, you're just dealing with it constantly. And also let me just tell you all a little secret. You might think, well, how is Glennon Doyle so productive? <laughs> this is what sobriety gives you. It gives you 24 hours a day of production, of being able to, if ever you wanted to create something, you can, because you're never out of this normal state of mind, right? This, this homeostasis. Um, I, I think that sobriety is the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, because it may, it forced me to look at some of the dragons in inside of that snow globe. Um, it forced me to actually consider myself, you know, all of us addicts usually have gone through some shit to get to become addicts. I know that that was the case for me. And so you say that like some of your sober friends are the most grounded. Well, we've hit rock bottom super hard. And what that means isn't just about alcohol or drugs. It's, it's about 
hitting an emotional rock bottom mm. and having to actually figure out the landscape and to, to pave the path for the rest of your life. And it's not easy by, don't get me wrong. It's, it's a difficult road, but it's a, it's an honored road. And it's, it's something that I am extremely proud of. And, you know, for a long time, I didn't know how I was going to be able to find another person on the planet that was sober because I lived my entire life only with people who partied only with people who wanted to like have a good time. Like I always said, Oh, I don't have a drinking problem. I have a fun problem. (laughs) And you know, I think, I think I could have gotten a lot more done in my life. I could have scored more goals. I could have been a better soccer player had I never reached for that initial beer when I was 12 years old, you know, I, and that's how, how old I was when it, when it all kind of started and it, and it was a slow process, a slow increase year over year. But, um, yeah, I mean, some of my, I I guess what I would also say is I really trust people who are sober, um, because they have really worked their asses off to get to that sobriety and they've also lived. So very, very few sober people, they don't have a leg to stand on in judgment, right? So we're usually pretty judge-free people because we've experienced it. We've done really shitty things. We know what it's like to feel like you've made a mistake or said something or done something really wrong in your drunkenness or in, in your intoxicated state. So yeah, those are the kind of people I'm actually, I, I, I'm more interested in those kind of people actually. As far as like the spiritual part of sobriety, I know you were raised like me in organized religion, which really was not for me and is not for me anymore. And I'm still searching for sort of what I believe and wanting to have a family and what I'm going to teach my children, because I think there's something about organized religion that gives you um, peace, like you're saying that you found through your sobriety, like there's like, oh, there's something bigger than myself that's there to give us hope and peace. Was sobriety a path for you to discovering your own version of what you believe? Hmm. Yeah. I love this question so much because interestingly enough, it ended up being, I didn't realize it at the time. So just to give people a little context, I grew up in a Catholic family. I'm the youngest of seven children. Um, I knew pretty young that I was gay, but I, you know, sitting in those pews from the time that I was a little kid, I was like, I was so into church. I was like, really? yeah, when I was a little kid, I was like so into it because the songs I thought were great. The songs were the best part. And yeah. it was like the only time that all of my brothers and sisters were forced to be the to get together like that and dinner. Uh, so like, I loved it. It was like so cozy feeling. Wow. And then as I got a little bit older, you know, the older siblings started to go to college. Um, and one by one, I just kept getting a little bit closer to my parents, like in the actual pews. <laughs> Cause we always sat like oldest, youngest We like that. That's weird, so it was cute. like seriously the Brady Bunch. <laughs> I was going to say, that's yeah. exactly what it reminds me. <laughs> Literally. So as I got closer and closer to my mom, um, you know, I must've been 15, 16 years old feeling like, I just don't know about this. Like, I don't understand. And I was kind of coming into my own sexuality at the time and telling nobody I was massively closeted. Um, and, and when I first started acting on my internal feelings for girls, I had, I had a girlfriend in high school. Um, I remember feeling like, 
oh, this is a choice I have to like, I have to decide. Am I going to choose my mom, God, or myself? Because I understood, mm. you know, I, I'm a recovered, I'm a recovering Catholic is what I say. That's what I say too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and given that choice between my mom and between God and myself at 16 years old, I like, I chose myself. I like unapologetically un chose myself. But what that meant was a part of me had to disassociate from my mom and a part of me had to disassociate from, from what I was thinking was God. Uh, and let me right. tell you a little story around that. We, Glenn and I were, um, she was about to go on stage. This is a couple of years ago. Uh, we happened to be at a church cause she often would go speak yeah. at big non-denominational or Baptist even churches right around the country. Yeah. And she would talk about race and talk about progressive Christianity, which is basically kind of what she believes. And I remember telling this story to the pastor because every time we go somewhere, I ask if it's open and affirming. And if you don't know what open and affirming is, it means do they accept gay people into their church and not believe that us gay folks are going straight to hell? So I asked the, the, the pastor, I said, do you have, is this an open and affirming church? And they said, no. And I said, okay, well, let me tell you the story. So I told my story about, you know, sitting in the pews and having to choose between my mom God and myself and Glennon was sitting there and she reached over and she grabbed my hand and she said, Oh baby, I get it. I finally figured this out. And I'm like, what? She said, you believe that God is church. You believe that God is mm -hmm. religion. She said, God is not church and not religion. Religion is made up of people and has been built and this, the institution of it has been built by men. And so, of course, you would feel, right? It makes sense why you would be afraid that God wouldn't love you. But God is not in church. And God is in you. So when you walked away from the church, you thought you were walking away from God. But what you really did is you walked away from church and you walked towards God because God is in you and it is in every human being on this planet. It's not only for the church abiding Christians. It's for right. everybody. Right. And I had these huge, like huge tears just like oh. come. And I, I was crying and I just like, I was like, Oh my gosh, how can you figure that out in this one second? You know, because for 15 years after I decided to choose myself instead of what I thought was God and Christianity and my mom, I became like a hardcore atheist. And what mm. Glennon understood is she said, it's so interesting that you are fighting so hard to not believe in something. She said, because it's the same thing, like not believing something so hardcore is like the same kind of dogma as believing in something. Right. So it's interesting that you would choose this, right? And so over time, I have understood that I have so much spirituality inside of me and I'm leaving religion behind. I'm not going to probably step foot in churches. That's not, that's not my kind of religion. That's not my kind of faith. I have no fucking idea what I believe. Cause it's like, 
ever changing. Every single yeah. day it changes. But what kind of books sit on my bookshelf? Like every godly book you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> every All single philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Buddhist. Anything that I can cling to, but I still haven't decided yet either. Yeah. But it's interesting. But do you? I don't know how you and Glennon raised your family with this, but it's like, we're thinking about having a family. And one of the main things I'm so worried about is like, what do I give young kids to cling to? Like, options. Options. Ooh, I love that. You give them options, options and let them decide. So we, wow. we, it's funny because Glennon has kind of made also, um, strides in the way that she would probably define her faith. And I won't speak for her. But I've noticed since we've been, you know, together, it's ironic because she, she was a huge gay rights activist inside of the church for many, many years before we even met. Wow. Um, married to Craig and having yeah. these three beautiful children. Um, and then when Glennon and I got together, the path that she was making for herself was the path that she would one day need to walk, which is so mm -hmm. interesting, right? Like. That's why we should always be intersectional in the things that we're fighting for, because who knows one day you will maybe one day need it yourself. Um, but what I think is so fascinating is she grew up and she was pretty hardcore Christian and f had a pretty hardcore Christian following, um, at the early parts of her, yeah. of her career. And ever since the, the beauty that I have learned from Glennon about faith is she is a, she's a big fan of Jesus. She worships the guy. She would joke. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. But, but the reality for that, for me is she doesn't necessarily. And I, and I think this is true for me that the Bible is, is a, is a work of art yeah. and there's stories that we're supposed to figure to help us figure out life. You know, it doesn't mean that every single word in that book ever happened. It's not literal trans. Like you're not supposed to stone your wife who, you know, cheats on you. <laughs> like <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and trying to, to read it in a way that you can find goodness. Mm. That is how Glennon has, I think made, such a successful career for herself is because she is so brilliant at making really complicated things sound simple and easy to yeah. follow and understand. Right. Like she does it on a daily, like, like I, I joke with her sometimes, like I'm usually the test Guinea pig on any of her ideas or philosophy. Cause if I don't understand it, it's not dumbed down enough. <laughs> right. It's, it's not, it's not, Cause she, she is a, she is a philosopher. She's a big thinker. She yeah. Really she's, she really yeah. is. Well, she says that the things that are happening in her head are oftentimes way more interesting than things that are happening in, okay. outside of herself. So I, yeah, I got to pick up my game, I guess. I just want to go back to the fact that you were 16 and you had the bravery to choose you know, yourself, your mother or God, and you chose yourself, this might not be related at all, but do you think that has anything to do with soccer? It has everything to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think it is for like, I mean, 16, I would have never been brave enough to choose between my mom, God and a partner. Yeah. You know? But listen, let me tell you something. You did end up figuring out how to choose yourself. 
when you decided it may have just happened a few years later, but, it, but when you decided that you wanted to choose acting, you were choosing yourself. You were going yeah. against some sort of familial grain. Everybody has it. It's just in all these different ways. I believe, I deeply believe, and this is for every parent listening, that sports, even if your kid sucks at them, and like just a newsflash, every child who plays sports sucks at sports. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like we just all, we just all do some, (laughs) some might be a better, a better version of suck, but everyone, every little kid across the board is not that good at sports. So why then are we putting our kids in sports? And there are some parents out there that believe that, that, oh, this is going to be their, their way to go to college, to get a scholarship. Some parents deeply believe that this is their, their kid is destined to be on the national team. Those two things are highly unlikely, statistically speaking. But why then would a professional athlete, myself, who knows the statistics, then encourage people to get their kids into sports? My kids are in sports. Why? It's because the skills that you learn when you are young about how to take care of yourself are taught within every single sport. Um, they're taught more, I believe, in team sports than individual. That's why I was very, I was much more attracted to team sports. It was more difficult, more of a challenge. I like to try to lead people. I like to, I like, I like the leadership component to team sports. But the the very things that parents don't understand about sports is that uh, the pressure, the stress, the actual physical challenge of it all. Um, all of that is teaching your kid how to be a human being and, and not just like be a good human being, but a human being that can take care of themselves well, that mm-hmm. know what boundaries mean, that know what social norms are, that know what their limits are physically, that know what their limits are mentally. Right. So yeah, when my kids get in the car and we we're driving back from practice, I know everything that they've just done wrong on the field and none of that shit matters. None of it matters if they've made a bad pass or they didn't make a run or, or they gave the ball away. I ask, well, I say three things. One, did you have fun? Two, what did you learn? Mm. And three, I love watching you play. Oh, that's it. So it's like, those are the things because what your kids need to hear from you over and over and over again is you've got this, right? So yeah. putting them in this, this environment shows, oh, my parents believe that I got this. And then when they get it, when they're out there, you have to affirm them like, gosh, it's so fun watching you. Hey, you know, it was really cool. I saw you during that water break and you saw one of your teammates and you went over and you were talking to them. Like, what were you talking about? Like, that's the shit that matters. That's the shit that, that, that will take them and, and teach them those really important life lessons that every person needs to know. Because half of the time, all of our adulthood is, is, is basically spent like this. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Am I doing this right? And Mm. sports is one of those things that getting into your body, doing something physical is like, it's one thing that I know every single day that I'm doing right. And I like check it off my list yeah, I check it off my list and I'm like, okay, I've done the hardest thing. 
that's the one thing that I know that I can contribute. And like, who knows what the hell is going to happen the rest of the state, but I've done the physical challenge. The thing that I like, basically they're all of us. The thing I least want to do in the day is go on a run. Wait, so you're an athlete who played in the World Cup and scored more goals than anyone, and you hate to go on a run. You got you to gotta break that down for me. <laughs> yes. You would think you're the type who's like, Glennon, I'm going to go on a 10-mile run. It's going to be awesome because I'm this athlete. Okay, so. Okay, break it down, girl. There, there, are, some, there are some unicorns out there that actually would would lie in my opinion and say that they like running but i know there are those people that like i'm so excited to get on that peloton and you're like are you for real though? yeah i think that they're lying i believe uh-huh. what they're saying is i'm so excited to have had ha- pelotoned i've yep. had the, run when it's over you're yeah. very endorphin yeah. high yes yeah i actually don't even get the endorphin high um it's a, let me just tell you the quick story of how i kind of came to know this because it was so ingrained in my livelihood every single day I'd wake up and run and train with the team whatever well when I retired I decided okay this body spent 30 years playing this sport it has earned uh, the goodwill of never having to work out again that's what I thought (laughs) that is literally what I thought um and about 18 months into this thought process this is when Glennon and I had just met um I realized I realized I was avoiding mirrors at all costs I realized I was so insecure. I realized that I was starting to get a little depressed. Mm. And, um, and I started talking about it with Glennon, you know, and I was like, I think that I'm going to have to start training again. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to become a runner, but before I try to become a runner, I have to become a walker. So I promised myself every six days a week, I would do something for 30 minutes and I would move my body for 30 minutes a day. So I would go on a walk. And for that first month, all I was worrying about is doing 30 minutes. That's it. I can, I know every person can go on a 30 minute walk every single day. I know that. I mean, barring disability, and I don't mean to be able, um, insensitive. What ended up happening is 30 days into this little challenge, I started to be like, oh, maybe I can like, maybe I can jog, maybe I can jog this thing. So I started to do walking, jogging 30 minutes. And then another month goes by and I'm starting to feel like, oh, okay. Like maybe I could run the whole thing. And so month after month after month, I just start to slowly increase my, whatever it is, my exertion, my heart rate. I I wear a heart rate monitor. So everything is calculated and measured. And then all of a sudden I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to maybe increase the time. So I went to 45 minutes and then a couple months later I went to an hour and I do long runs now because I'm now like actually training for marathons and stuff. But at, Ooh, the, cool. at the end of the day, the thing that I learned the most isn't necessarily fitness based. It's emotional. Mm. The thing that I was missing that was so inset in the daily life of a national team player was my self-esteem. And the only way that I have learned over 40 years of my life for me to have unwavering self-esteem, which is like that, that is the the standard that I want to be operating with unwavering self-esteem is if I work out five to six days a week, um, 
if I'm doing something that, that pushes me, that hurts a little bit. And I know that, that I might get, get a little bit of pushback on some of your listeners. Um, but for me personally, I have to experience a little bit of suffering to feel like I have checked off some of the, the things that day for me to feel like, damn, like this morning, I, two days a week, I go run with a friend here in my hometown and, um, her name is Katie and she's, she's great. And it's basically like a therapy session. We just like talk and run for an hour every single wow. Tuesday and Thursday. Um, and f- early days, like I just remember being like so stressed about the time and stressed about how I'm going to run. And over the last couple of years of doing this week after week with her, I realized it's the most difficult hour, but the hour I look forward to most because it's the thing that I feel the best about after it's done. So correlating challenge and a little bit of suffering with self-esteem and feeling like you have, you've done the hardest thing that you can do. Like you're actually putting difficult things to do on your schedule and then you actually do them. It's just this self-esteem that for me is unwavering and the thing that I know that I need to do every day. Oh, that's so inspiring. I like, I, I, that's exactly right. Cause it's, it's going to hurt a little bit in order. You have to challenge yourself. It can't, I mean, starting with a 30 minute walk and all of that is, I, I love that too, because you can also just say today, I'm just going to go on a 30 minute walk and that's enough. Yes. You know? Yeah. And some days that I, 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 quite honestly, I do like if I've run 30 miles a week and I don't want to do that five miles that day, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go on a walk. But I still yeah. do something. Something. Yeah. Just showing up. Yeah. Yeah. Do I'm doing something. a 40 day yoga challenge. I'm putting it in quotes because <laughs> I, I I was told by my dear friend, Dr. Tara. Wait, listen, this is good. Abby, you're going to like this. That she asked a famous yogi once, like, what does it mean to have a yoga practice? And they told her, you just have to show up to the mat, even if it's lying there for five minutes. So my goal for 40 days isn't to do a chaturanga times a hundred. It's to show up to the mat, even if I lie there for five minutes and feel my breath. That's And so that's my 40 day physical, I love mental this. challenge. I know. I also like, I got it. I've, I've been really into the Peloton and I'm learning to play golf, which I know you like. I too. love it. I love it. So well, I just have like to... a little story to tell about yoga. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to throw my wife a little bit under the bus. It is May. It's, it, we're recording this on May 7th, 2021. Yep. And um, my wife last week just finished her 30 day trial of when she started. Cause at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody signed up for those 30 day challenges. <laughs> oh she yeah. Just, we all did. She just finished it early May, 2021. It only took her 14 months. <laughs> Congrats, Glennon. We're so proud of you. <laughs> I died. She came out, oh. she goes, I finished my 30 day challenge. Yes. Tell her I'll let her know in two years when I finish my 40 day yoga challenge. <laughs> okay, let's give her a good shout out because one of my favorite parts of your Wolfpack book, which is now next to Untamed Aww. on my nightstand. I love it so much. But something I have always wondered about with pro athletes, because I started acting at four and it's been my whole life. Athletes are the same way, but there is a timetable. Dancers, the same thing on your body. And there's this beautiful part of Wolfpack where you ask Lennon, who, I don't know who I am without soccer. Mm. And if you took acting away from me, it's actually like my biggest fear. Cause like, I, I wouldn't know who I am without that. 
And she writes, you should get the book because she writes the most beautiful letter to you Mm -hmm. uh, that you share with us in the book. But were you scared of that always being a young athlete, that knowing that there would be a timetable to the end? Yeah, this is going to sound a little bit morbid, but it's like it's like the first death that you are going to be anticipating in your life. Right. Like, I think I have a I have a probably an unhealthy actually relationship with the idea and the concept of death. I'm terrified to die. Um, so whenever I think about it, I, I, I sweat a little and I get that pit in my stomach, like, oh gosh. And then immediately like too much, got to think about something else. That's kind of how it felt to think about my impending retirement. Um, when I was younger, it was so far away, like fine, like no worries, you know? And I think a big reason for that for me, I guess the reason why I probably presented as anxiety and stress is because I didn't really do anything to prepare for it. Mm. Um, so, and, and by the way, nobody does enough preparation for the big transitions of life. And by the way, there isn't like, there should be an industry for the transitions. There should be help. There should be like a safety net that you can fall into, um, you know, I, I stood on stage next to Kobe Bryant, may he rest in peace and Peyton Manning, um, getting the same award. And then the the three of us turned to walk off stage. I realized the three of us were walking into three very different retirements and, and the kind of anger and sadness and frustration and fear that rose during that moment of realization was true. Like their biggest concern was where they were going to invest their hundreds of millions of dollars and rightfully so they earned that money. Nobody's trying to take that from them. But my biggest concern, cause I was, I'm a female athlete is how I was going to find a job so that I could pay my mortgage. Yeah. I mean, I was terrified. It was so terrifying. So not just like taking away the identity soccer player from my, from my personality and from my, my life and my career, but also taking away all of the benefit and privilege that comes with that identity. Like two things are happening at the same time yeah. and that's hard to separate yourself with, from. So I just remember when, when I first was talking about this with Glennon, um, I mean, how many times I feel like she saved my life. Like it's unbelievable. But I think that when we had that initial conversation and she, w- and, and she wrote me this letter, um, about how, you know, who I am and what I brought to soccer made soccer special. And I get to bring myself everywhere I go. So whatever I choose doesn't matter. I'm going to make it special in some way. And I think that everybody needs to hear that, right? Like we're all writing our own movie and we're the stars of our own movie, right? Every single one of us, like I'm not in Beth Bear's movie. I'm in Abby Wambach's movie. And so everything that I do, I want to do it in a way that feels special. And the only way that happens is I actually believe that my life is special, whether I'm doing something on the grandest stage playing for my country, or if I'm on hundreds of stages after my, my career, being a public speaker, talking about this book, Wolfpack. I mean, not many people know this either, but because I leaned into that transition time because I made that book Wolfpack and because I've been able to make a professional speaking career out of it, I've actually earned probably five times more money in five years in my post-career than I did in the entirety of my 15-year soccer career. 
And I'm not saying that to like brag, I'm not telling you the exact numbers, but I'm just saying that because I think that people are wildly mistaken about how little money women athletes actually make. Yeah. That's why that fight is so important. That's why fighting for equality is so important so that the next woman who retires, Crystal Dunn, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, I do not want them to feel that stress, to feel like, oh, they have to completely recreate themselves. I want to build something so that they can actually step into a new life. I want them to start creating something now, right? So yeah. so I don't know what you want to do if you want to be an actor forever, because you probably can be. You're amazing. We all love you. You're very sweet. But, but you never know, right? In this business, it can all, you can be on a show one year and 10 years go by and you don't, you get a call. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's terrifying, but it's also... It takes a certain kind of personality to be able to live with that kind of pressure and to be able to perform under those kind of circumstances. And that's in some way, I know that this is going to sound so silly, but I think that in some ways, that's why I believe movie stars and TV celebrities that they make really the big bucks in some ways, because I think that their, <laughs> their, their livelihood like truly is on and also off. There's very few people who are actually making loads and loads and loads of money in the industry. Right. Yeah. Is, I mean, you've done so much with work with women's soccer and I really want to know how Angel City came about with this Natalie Portman and her hearing about this pay gap and being like so <laughs> badass and being like, I'm actually going to tell, I want to do something to help these athletes. Yeah. Um, and I'm so excited being a person who lives in Los Angeles, yeah. have my season tickets already. Like I'm ready for it. But how did that all that must feel super empowering to give back in that way. Yeah. I mean, the story kind of is hilarious because we, <laughs> we were at a time's up event and they asked me to, um, do a, like a fireside chat session while the event was going on. And there were like so many celebrities in the audience just there to, to learn and to lend their names to this time's up action. Right. So, and like I said, this is a fireside chat. And for whatever reason, I don't know if I was like extremely nervous that day. I, I don't know. I just, I felt like I bombed. I felt like it was the worst event that I had ever done. I got back into the room and Glennon was there and I was like, oh my God, I feel so embarrassed. She's like, you were fine, you know? And two years later, <laughs> literally two years later, I get a, a direct message on my phone and it's Natalie Portman. She's like, hey, can I call you tomorrow? I'm like, Okay, Natalie Portman. <laughs> sure, you can call me tomorrow. Sure, here's my number. <laughs> yeah, like what is happening? What? So she calls and she tells me this whole story that she was in the audience that day and she couldn't believe the gender inequity that was happening at the top of U.S. soccer between the men and women's teams. She couldn't believe it. Like you all are winners. They haven't won anything. Like how can this be happening? And lo and behold, she said, I took what you said to heart. And I have to be a part of the action. I can't just watch and be upset anymore. I have to do something. So she found an ownership group for a professional women's soccer team, and they're going to call themselves Angel City. There's at the time, I think there was 11 uh, former women's national team players who had said yes, who have some sort of LA t ties to the club. And she just thought, you know, I had to call you because you were the person that put this idea in my head. Like you were the person that sparked this entire thing. 
And so I just have to ask you, do you, do you want to be an owner of this team with us? Like invest however much you want. Like we're going to take care of, you know, this, we're going to treat this like a startup, but like, I have to ask you like, and I just was like, before she could finish a sentence, I was like, yes, don't take it back. Don't, you can't, you can't take it back. No take backs. Right. And what a moment that was like, you know, as a gay woman who for a lot of her career was worried about the industry finding out she was gay because I was so worried that I was going to lose endorsements. And remember, this is like right after Ellen got famous again, like Ellen came out and lost everything for many years. Um, and so I like, I internalized really what happens to gay people in the sports or business world and and in the industry, if they were to come out, then bad things happen. So I just stayed in the closet for as long as I could. So you could imagine this like gay woman getting this call from Natalie Portman asking to be a professional sports team owner and feeling like, I don't know, like what, what did I do to be so lucky, you know? And then when she told me about the other women from the national team being part owners as well, and that we really wanted to make this team and do this team differently. It was incredible. I mean, nothing short of a miracle. Everybody should go check it out, especially if you live in L.A. Buy, you can you can reserve. You can't get your actual seats yet because it comes out in 2022. But you can reserve your spot, which I did. Yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> OK, I have one more question about Wolfpack yeah. that I'm dying to ask yeah. you. Is that OK? Of course. OK. I, this might be a downer, not Pollyanna, which I'm usually very positive Pollyanna. But for some reason, when I was reading the chapter about demanding the ball, uh, what went through my head uh, was because I love Michelle Akers, too, growing up, by the way. And I in your in your book, I love you'll have to read it to find out how she informed Abby. But I I love that you said demand the ball. But my I went right to, OK, what if I demand the ball and then I fail and I don't score the goal? Mm. And I've demanded from my team or my pack that yeah. I, I have the ball. Yeah. What do you do if you hit I love the goalpost? I love this. I love this so much. I love it because demanding the ball also requires follow through. Now, defining mm. what follow through means is very important. You can't just go around saying, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball, and then never following through because then you're just a liar, Right. What what true leadership is about is demanding the ball and then following through. Now, this doesn't mean that I was successful in every single time that I demanded the ball. It means that I responded every single time that I demanded the ball, right? So if I demanded the ball and I didn't score, if I demanded the ball and we ended up losing that game, what happens to when a leader steps up and the team is relying on you and you don't follow through? You as a leader say my bad, and I'm not going to let that happen again. So that's it. Yeah. Right. Like we're not all going to be successful. And I think for the most part in that chapter, I'm trying to get women and also men trying to get women to understand that they have to speak up for themselves. Well, right. And we're so fearful of it. I mean, that was my initial woman thing reading that chapter was no, no, I just have to be grateful. I mean, which is another great chapter of your, your book about being grateful and what that entails. But it's like, yeah, that fear of like, what if I demand the ball and I fail, but it seems like men don't 
they just demand the ball and they don't really fear the outcome. They follow through and they go up again. You of know? course, because, yeah. because the world has told them that they are allowed to fail over and over. Male, men fail up, right? M- Michelle Obama said that men are allowed to fail up. Where yep. as women, when we, we have to be perfect because A, there are fewer of us in the industries or in the, in the business world, there are fewer of us. And by comparison, I just learned this thing the other day that, that just blew my mind. What I have recently figured out is why I was so pissed when I was walking off that stage with Kobe and Peyton. It wasn't because they made more money than me. It was because I didn't demand as much as I deserved when I was inside of it. Mm -hmm. And when I was inside of it, and this is what the world tries to teach women, is to compare yourself to other women. Right. Compare yourself to other people that look like you, that have the same experience as you, Mm -hmm. because that is like and like. Don't compare yourself to another man. And so when I walked off that stage and I realized Kobe and Peyton, they, they they, they were more successful than me has nothing to do with success. The whole of my career, I was comparing myself to other women instead of other people that are in my position that are other men, um, other, other men in, in, in English premier league soccer and in, in La Liga, Cristiano Ronaldo, Leo Messi. I should have yeah. been comparing myself to them all along. Them. Like, why, why didn't I do that? And it's because the world has taught and taught me, by the way, I'm like a feminist. I'm the person who's supposed to be the wokest, but we're all victim to it because we've all been swallowing the same toxic messages over and over and over again. I mean, my husband's experiencing that in his 40s. He's getting better character auditions than he ever has. As men age, the parts almost get juicier and deeper. And I think Hollywood is starting to do that um, for women. And But most of the time, it's because the women, like Reese Witherspoon or Julie mm-hmm. Dreyfus, they demand to be behind the camera and produce it themselves right, and right, make right, those right. opportunities. Yes, exactly. But, so I have a question. How do you memorize lines? Oh my gosh, I've been doing it the same way I used to memorize exams for tests my whole life. So I have to type it up by rote. Hmm. So every Saturday morning, I sit with my script because we shoot, we we film live audience usually on Monday and Tuesday. So it's like a play. So I have to learn all weekend the lines. And I, I sit and t- nobody's ever asked me this. It's so nerdy. I love it because I get to be able to be like, I, uh, I type it literally by rote. I don't say it out loud. I just type it over and over again. I have a very OCD. I do it three times, each line three times, and then each scene three times. Then I move on to the next scene. Wow. So you are you typing on a computer? Like, on a computer with the script hard I have to have a hard copy next to me type like I used to do for exams at UCLA it's like the same thing and then um Sunday I type again but once and then I move my body and do it out loud this started during two broke girls because I was memorizing like 60 pages a weekend it was like my grad school because my character just spoke for 30 minutes just the whole time uh and this show I have such a break like it doesn't take me all weekend anymore (laughs) because I'm on an ensemble now (laughs) a big ensemble but yeah well that's a nice question I never got to reveal my OCD ways no I think that like (laughs) I'm starting to get a little bit into tv not acting but like docu (gasps) docu stuff and cool I still have to memorize stuff and I have I have real memorizing anxiety I just like I can't well, you love remember. movement. Yeah. So my other idea, because what I'll usually do is also on Sundays, try to tie my workout 
to my learning voice memo. Yep, I do it, that. And walk because I love to walk or run while I'm learning. I think it gets in your body more, moving your body while you do it. Okay, That's well, really it makes helpful. me feel a lot better that now I have no excuse. You can do 60 pages and I just, have to, <laughs> I literally have to memorize like one page this weekend. But I'm slow. A lot of my co-stars can show up Monday morning, see the changes because sitcoms, the, the jokes and stuff, it changes all the time, can go like this and like have their lines down. So I also just, I'm not a quick memorizer, which is okay, Abby, yeah, if of you're not. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, no judgment here. I'm no I'm, judgment. I'm, I'm much slower than you, I bet. <laughs> well, if you ever need help, just Actually, I heard, because I love Julie Foudy's podcast, Laughter Permitted, I heard you on it. Are you moving to the West Coast, perhaps? I am. We're moving to L.A. late June. It's so exciting. Fuck yeah. Can, I'll help you memorize. We'll yeah. go on a walk around like the <laughs> Reservoir of Ryman Canyon. We'll hike or something and I'll, Amazing. I'll, I'll read them out loud to you and you could perfect I'm, I'm so excited you guys are gonna be west coast yeah it's so awesome we're excited very very exciting it's just a whole i bet it's a lot though. the whole yeah. move is you know the way it yeah. goes but you'll get close to the beach well i guess you're in florida so you're close to the beach already but we, well we're not as close to the beach as we will be so it's exciting that that'll be the oh that's part. awesome yeah Okay, so here are our final questions we ask everyone. Okay. You can only bring three records to a deserted island. What would they be and why? I would say probably a Taylor Swift folklore or Evergreen. The Is it oh, yeah. Evergreen, right? Evermore. Evermore. Evergreen. More. Evermore. Evermore. I'm a huge Dave Matthews fan. So anything from like the late 90s. And then I would say... Indigo Girls, anything. Yeah. I love Indigo Girls. Yeah. Yes. We'll do, we've been doing Desert Island Discs like with everybody guests we've had on. And then I've just been listening to these playlists because everybody has such good albums. Like even Dave Matthews. I'm like, oh, I remember making out with a boyfriend at Dave Matthews yes. concert. Like, and being in the lawn, in, being in the lawn. On the lawn. At, yeah, on the lawn yeah. somewhere. Yep. Oh God. Those concerts were so fun. Yeah. Okay. What subject do you Google the most? Well, right now, because we're moving, I Google like furniture, picking oh, out yeah. design and furniture and uh, like. What's your style? Well, the, the good news is that Glennon's got um, this new podcast coming out, which is really exciting. And her advertisers are going to send us some free stuff, which oh, is yes. very exciting. So I've just been recently Googling some of those ads. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Okay. And the final question is a blank room exercise. So if you don't mind, close your eyes, go into a blank room. What are you hearing? So I am hearing the sound of my daughter's voice in the, oh. in the background. She's like, she's in another room doing a voice lesson with her voice coach. Oh, um, and then I'm hearing Glennon on a call in the other room because <laughs> she spends a lot of time uh, with her team on calls on Zoom calls. I'm hearing Emma like juggling a soccer ball. It's just like all, all family <laughs> stuff. I'm hearing Chase like I'm just like hearing Chase reading. Um, our oldest son, he is so awesome and cool, and he loves reading, and it's like an activity for him, you know. So like he literally like he's just walking around the house with the book in his hand, like all the time. So I can actually like 
even with my eyes closed, I can hear him just turning those pages. It's so, it's oh, so I love that. Yeah. That's how I was as a kid. I was always had a book around. It yeah. was like my happy spot. It still is. Yeah. Um, what are you smelling? Well, of course, something that I've just cooked that will taste delicious in a few minutes. Mm. Well, my next question was, what are you tasting? So I guess your delicious meal. Yes. What are you touching? Something cozy and soft. I'm a v- very like material clothing. It has to be very comfy. soft and comfy. My wife would say I am very fancy. So she would say, and also expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, expensive comfy is my MO too. Like it has to be like the utmost soft, like yes. f- but still look chic yes. even on the couch. I mean, that's been 2020 I yes. think for all of and us. And also look like you didn't spend a ton of money on it because exactly, that's also yeah. a thing. Oh, it's just loungewear. Yeah. It's just loungewear. <laughs> it's chic, but it's loungewear, right? Um, I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Abby. This was like one of my favorite conversations. I was so excited to oh, talk to you. Same. I could have I had like pages, like maybe we have to do a round two at some point when you have another book or something. Coming of out, course, of course. I loved it. Well, do you want to, you're going to have to write the next book because I do not want to write another book. Oh my God. By gosh. the way, I wrote one and I never want to write one again. <laughs> yeah. They're it's so, so hard. hard. Yeah. People don't understand. Um, thank you, Abby. This is awesome. Awesome. Okay. Bye y'all. Wow. Y'all got to go out and get Wolfpack and forward and read more. Abby Wambach is truly one of the most prolific women, not only in sports, but like women of our generation. I just, I think she's incredible. And I was so grateful for this conversation. I even dressed up. That's how fangirl I was. You'll see on Instagram, but I actually like wore all my women's national team soccer attire and totally became a little fangirl again. So I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And that closes this season of Harmonics. Can you believe it? I was blown away by the guests we had this season and season one. I'm still forever grateful every day. This podcast is such a piece of my heart. I started this in 2020 during the pandemic because I wanted to have vulnerable conversations without a filter. I wanted to talk about suffering and joy and the in-between and be messy and vulnerable and gross and also joyful. And I'm so proud of this community of people we've built. The numbers keep going up. So you're telling your friends, which is amazing. And I'd really love to involve you for the next season. So please let us know. We are at Harmonics Podcast on Instagram, or you can find us at harmonicspodcast.com and email us. But we would really love to know A, what guests you'd like to see on the show, because I'm sure you all have wonderful ideas, and also topics you want to hear about. Do you want to hear more about mental health? Do you want more meditations? What do you want? We'd love to provide, and we are so excited to bring you some really exciting stuff in the new season. So have a few months of summer break, and I will see you in what's bound to be another insane season for season three And just thank you from the bottom of my heart to this community. For me, this is such a passion and heart project, and it's really gotten me through these past few, well, year, year and a half, and into the beyond. Um, it It is something that I look forward to every week and that I have learned so much from and feel so supported by, and I hope that you do too. Much love, everybody. 
Have a great one. This episode of Harmonics was produced and edited by Chris Jacobs. Our project manager is Shelby Williamson. And it's always made possible by the leadership of executive producer Amy Reitnauer Jacobs, research producer Courtney Locks, and the entire team over at The Bluegrass Situation. I'm Beth Bears. Thanks for listening. Stay vulnerable, y'all. <laughs>